Soon may the Hogshead Man come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. You are listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for Mariners. Don't you worry about us, said one of the Death Eaters. Worry about yourself, breaking curfew. And where will you lot traffic potions and poisons when my pubs close down? What'll happen to your little sidelines then? Are you threatening? I keep my mouth shut. It's why you come here, isn't it? I still say I saw a stag Patronus, shouted the first Death Eater. Stag? roared the barman. It's a goat, idiot. That is going to be a dated reference by the time this comes out. I think it's already a dated reference. That's because we're a hundred years old and we only just now learned about TikTok. Did we say our names? I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. The last four episodes we made were about Christmas. So this is actually the Quibbler again and we are reading still and maybe forever Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This week the chapter called The Missing Mirror. Oh, also, just as a quick Christmas addendum slash update, we fully did intend to make a Love Actually episode, and then we watched about half of Love Actually. And I don't know, something about this godforsaken year and a half or so, really four years, but... (laughs) No, seriously, something about the last, like, several months in particular, we hated Love Actually and not like funny hated it and I really liked that movie in the past like it's obviously problematic but I have thoroughly enjoyed it but I found it miserable and mean-spirited in a way that I had never really experienced before. Maybe next Christmas we'll be in like a better mood. I was just like all of these men are garbage like throw them in the lake and in the Thames throw them into the Thames these women should form some sort of commune And overall, I just don't want to think about the fact that this is heterosexuality. (laughs) So we really did try. Like, we watched half the movie, and then you you and I kind of looked at each other and were like, feels bad, man. (laughs) It was not fun. Um, Another addendum to wrap up our holiday coverage, even though now it's well into January. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for everybody who reached out after our Charlie Brown Christmas special about... Grandma Janice, and sharing your own experiences with loss around the holidays. I haven't gotten back to everyone yet, but I found uh, those messages profoundly moving. And just thank you all very, very much for reaching out and sharing. And it means a lot to me to know that people all over the world got to know Grandma Janice a little bit. And it means a lot to my family, too. So thank you. So back to Harry Potter. Obviously, spoilers, we're... We've been in the second half of this book for all of 2020 and now all of 2021. Which is just more 2020. Ugh, more like 2020 plus. 2020 plus one. Ugh, the worst. So yeah, we'll spoil this series just as much as we please. And, you know, lots of other stuff while we're at it. Cursing, of course. I mean, kind of fuck these books. But also, it's annoying because every time we come back to them, I'm like, oh, these are great. This chapter is so good. So yeah, we're reading the chapter called The Missing Mirror. Also some adult themes. Clearly I don't know what order we do episodes in. So this week's adult themes are having siblings, curfews, trauma responses, animal husbandry, and utilitarianism. Are you ready for this? Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapter, 
the trio apparate into Hogsmeade from their final hiding place, trademark, looking for a way into Hogwarts. Shit hits the fan like the moment their feet hit the ground. They hear this terrible screaming, a bunch of Death Eaters rush out of the three broomsticks and shout for Potter to come out from under his invisibility cloak. One of them tries to summon the cloak using the Osseo charm, but the cloak doesn't fly away because it it's a, a hallow! fucking deathly ass hallow, which is a very handy thing to have in a situation like this. One of these would really help in Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. It just occurred to me. Which, which is all Alex does the only now. thing I'm doing now besides training my puppy. Plays with the puppy, plays Breath of the Wild. So this episode will be coming out in 2022 after I finish Breath of the Wild because <laughs> I am very bad at video games. Anyway, Harry used- Wait, I have to tell everybody something. Today I came out, Alex was playing Zelda, and he was like, it turns out the horses in this aren't immortal. My horse, Rusty, got electrocuted. He got electrocuted by an electric bat and then fell off a cliff, and I went down, and he was just lying there, and I was like, Rusty, Rusty, get up. Get up, Rusty. I can't believe you can kill your horses in this terrible game. It actually is a beautiful looking game. Yeah, it's the only way I'm traveling these days because the pandemic's super bad again. It was always bad, but now it's extra bad and we are hunkering down. So, anyway, uh, sorry, hope everyone's staying safe. Yeah, so yeah, this is now a Legend of Zelda podcast. Not really. (laughs) Also, Harry, Ron, and Hermione can't apparate away because there's some other, like, there's some other charm, obviously. Uh, Hogsmeade is under martial law, or the magical equivalent of it. So there's also too many Death Eaters to curse. They call on the Dementors because, you know, they're not supposed to kill Harry because that's Voldemort's job, but it's okay. They decide it's okay if his soul is sucked out, which... I don't know, that seems like a technicality. Because I guess that doesn't kill you, but well, it doesn't... it depends on what we mean by whatever. Yeah, I guess, no, you're not, like, legally dead. But it doesn't make you stronger. <laughs> so, oh, dear. Harry uses his Patronus to fight off the Dementors, which, of course, gives away their position. Before Harry can decide what to do next, he hears a gruff voice saying, Potter, in here, quick. The gang finds himself inside the Hogshead Inn, which is, as you might recall, Hogsmeade's finest dive bar the barman pulls them upstairs into a room that's pretty much bare there's like a carpet and a fireplace and an oil painting of a young girl the barman then goes downstairs and he argues with the death eaters he says he was the one who set off the caterwauling charm after curfew because he let his cat out and that's i guess if anyone's outside after curfew and anyone moves it sets off this caterwauling charm which is hilarious that it's called that. I guess it just sounds like a cat screaming. Caterwauling is a word. It's not cats screaming. But that's what cats do out in the night, right? They caterwaul. I don't know if Have you ever heard that? Yeah, but I don't know if that word is about cats, is it? I thought caterwauling was just like making a ruckus. I think it's the noise the cats make. I'm looking it up. But let's find out. Keep going, but I'm going to look up the word caterwaul. I think it could be both. Anyway, one of the Death Eaters says they saw a stag Patronus for sure. It was definitely Harry Potter. The barman says it wasn't a stag. It was a goat, you idiot. Uh, Because the barman, he says, my Patronus is a goat. And you'll be in big trouble if you summon Lovo just because a cat got loose after curfew. 
The barman also says if they shut down my bar, you'll have no place to trade illegal potions and poisons, etc. So eventually the Death Eaters back off because the dark market trumps the dark mark. Ha ha. Okay, wait, update. Alex is right. The word caterwauling means more generally to make a shrill howling or wailing noise, but it is from the Middle English words for cat and whale. So it does mean wailing like a cat. I mean, the Middle English word for cat is cat. So by that, I mean, it is just the combination of cat and whale is what caterwauling means. So vindication. Alex is sweet, sweet right. vindication. Where sorry were to, we? Sorry to totally derail. <laughs> What are we here to do if not derail ourselves constantly? Because we're already derailed, can I just comment that it's sort of weird that all of a sudden they're having this like Canterbury Tales like luncheon. He's like, I've got a wedge of cheese and a loaf of bread and like flagons of mead. And it's like, this is not actually like old England. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's an old timey bar. I guess that's true. Like. But I just thought that meal, I was like, it's like what sort of like a, I don't know, what, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a plowman's lunch. Well, yeah, but I'm specifically imagining like a monk in like a picaresque novel, like stomping under a tree. (laughs) And I don't know, it just felt really anachronistic. I mean, the the Hogshead Inn has a kind of ambiance and vibe to keep up. It's true. You know? So. It's like how McSorley's Tavern which one day we will return to, serves like wedges of cheese and on- like cheese and onions and yeah, like lighter dark beer. Okay, yeah. Like it's, it's like a sleeve of saltines <laughs> and like low grade like cheddar. I love cheese and onions and saltines. And God, remember bars? I know. Anytime I see or read anything with a bar in it, I'm like, man, Harry, Ron, and Hermione think things suck right now. But at, but at least, least they can go to the yeah, bar. Yeah, at least they're in a fucking bar. No, outrageous. Anyway, the barman heads back inside and he says to the trio, this is a direct quote, you fucking idiots. That is what Aberforth would actually say. Oh, we haven't even named him as Aberforth yet, have we? Yeah. Sorry. No spoilers. Spoiler alert. Oh, wait. All the spoilers. He says, what were you thinking coming here? Harry takes a look at the barman, and he's got, like, long, stringy, wire-gray hair and a beard, and he's wearing spectacles. And behind the dirty lenses, Harry can see that his eyes are piercing brilliant blue. Harry says, so you're the one who sent Dobby. You're the eye I saw in... Sirius's mirror, the barman says, I thought he'd be with you. They, uh, Harry says, no, Dobby was killed by Bellatrix Lestrange. Lestrange, I always fuck that up. Why doesn't Aberforth clean his glasses? I don't, because it's the vibe. It's the vibe. You just want to be looking through dirty lenses all day. Looking through dirty glasses lenses is one of my great pet peeves. It disgusts me. Which is now, I mean, if we ever go outside, that's what we're doing all the time. It's not dirty, but like fogged glasses, just constantly. Oh, that's the worst thing about masks. I'm fine wearing a mask, wear a fucking mask, I get it. But if you are someone who has glasses, as both of us do, and it is cold out, especially, you know that your mask is constantly fogging your glasses, life is hell, go on. The barman says, it's too bad. I liked that elf. Harry then says, and this is a direct quote, you're bu- 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 motherfucking Aberforth Dumbledore. 
we find out that Aberforth got the mirror from Undungus Fletcher. See, because you said it was Aberforth Dumbledore earlier that, like, spoiled the, like... Everybody the knows it's Aberforth. This is bit. the Aberforth chapter. It harshed the ba-ba-ba motherfucking. It didn't harsh it. It took the edge off the ba-ba-ba motherfucking. I so, apologize to all of our okay. dear listeners. We've got another big reveal later, so... What is it? Oh, well, you're just going to be surprised all over again. Oh, okay. No, I know who comes. <laughs> We learned that Aberforth got the mirror from Undungus Fletcher, because, you know, that's just where you get... Dung just has everything. Sketchy just, shit from. He's basically a dragon. Yeah, and Albus told him what it was, and since then, Aberforth's been trying to keep an eye out for Harry and company. Ron asks if it was Aberforth who sent the silver dough. Aberforth says, you're as dumb as a Death Eater. Mine's a fucking goat. Like, pay attention your reading comprehension skills are low. Because Ron's not reading. We're reading. But if you were. Ron, we do know that Ron has low reading comprehension. <laughs> that is an accurate take. Like Heather said earlier, they get to eat and drink some meat and cheese and bread. And I don't know. It sounds awesome to me. Harry tells Aberforth that they need to get into Hogwarts. Aberforth says, give it up. The quest is hopeless. Voldemort's won. The Order of the Phoenix is finished. Go into hiding. Just get out of the country. Harry says, Dumbledore, your brother gave me a job to do. Aberforth says, my brother, he wanted a lot of things, but people, a lot of people got hurt with him carrying out his like grand plans. He says, get the fuck out of here. Aberforth then presses Harry. He asks him if Albus left him an easy job, something a kid could do. Are you sure he told you everything? Which, you know, gives Harry pause because no. Um, What's he doing? Oh, no, he was having a dream. He was, like, really wiggling a second ago. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, this dog is cute. Like, you cannot even believe. Did we tell everyone that we're recording next to our puppy? Oh, yeah. He's having a nap in his crate. He's 12 weeks old tomorrow. His name is George. He is heaven. Aw. So if you hear some puppy yipping or barking. You're very, very lucky. (laughs) Good for you getting to hear the beautiful angel noises this little this little dude makes. Hermione asks if the painting on the wall is of Ariana Dumbledore. So... Hearing the name Ariana, I thought you were going to say Ariana Grande. I just haven't... (laughs) I haven't thought the name Ariana without ending it with Grande in a long time. Ariana Grande Dumbledore. That was her middle name. Uh... (laughs) Sorry. You said Ariana and my brain just said Grande. In short, yes, it is Ariana. We learn from Araforth that when his sister was six years old, she was attacked by three muggle boys who caught her doing magic, which of course, you know, little wizard kids can't control. And she was never right again. She bottled her magic inside, and sometimes it would explode out of her, which I think is something that, a condition that's sort of elaborated on in the Fantastic Beasts series, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Uh, their father, the Elder Dumbledore, whose name completely escapes me, he went to Azkaban for going after the Muggles. The family kept Ariana's condition a secret because they knew that the Wizarding Authorities would lock her up in St. Mungo's because she would be seen as a threat to the Statute of Secrecy because she would couldn't control her abilities. Aberforth was one of her favorites. 
he was like able to like calm her down when she was upset and he she would help him feed the goat so they had a very close relationship albus he says never had much time for her because he was always up in his room reading and corresponding with quote the most notable magical names of the day so this is when shit starts to get tragic. I guess it's been tragic. It's been tragic for quite a but while. But when Ariana was 14, she accidentally killed their mother in one of her fits. So Albus, that's when Albus came home to become head of the family, but it derailed his plans for a trip around the world with Elfish Doge. And Aberforth says he did all right for a few weeks, but then, of course, Grindelwald came along and they hold themselves up to talk about their plans to take over the world or whatever like Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> what are we doing tonight, Grindelwald? The same thing we do every night, Albus. Try to take over the world. That is a dated reference. Uh, the Animaniacs are back. So Pinky and the Brain isn't the Animaniacs. Yeah, they were a segment on the Animaniacs that were spun off as their own thing. So Pinky and the Brain are back, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the okay. Animaniacs are totally back. They're on Hulu? I don't know. They're one on of the one streaming of the services. Streaming. They're out there. Aberforth wanted to be the one to take care of to take care of Ariana, but Albus insisted he finish school. Eventually, Aberforth confronted Dumbledore and Grindelwald. He said, "You can't take her with you to go off and do whatever you do. Your whole like your whole supervillain yeah, thing. She can't go on your like Nazi world tour with you." Oh God! Uh, Grindelwald got angry. Of course, he said he called. He said Aberforth was stupid. And he shouldn't be getting in the way of his brilliant brother. He says that when wizards rule the world, she won't have to hide anymore. But, you know, this didn't go sit well with Aberforth. And this all ends in a terrible duel. Grindelwald used the Cruciatus curse on Aberforth. Albus tried to stop them. And the dueling set Ariana off. She got into the middle and somehow she was killed. Aberforth didn't know whose curse did it, but it ended in tragedy. It began in tragedy. It's just been tragedy. It's tragedy all the way down. Aberforth is freshly crushed after telling the story. It's like it happened yesterday. Harry is filled with revulsion. Grindelwald, after all this went down, took off because he already had a record. And then Aberforth says, But Ariana's death set my brother free. He could go off and become the greatest wizard of all time. Harry says he was never free. And then reveals that the knight... Dumbledore died, he drank a potion that forced him to relive Ariana's death, because now he understands what Dumbledore, Albus Dumbledore, was screaming about down in the Cave of Terrors. And Harry says, if you saw that, you you couldn't say that Dumbledore, that Albus Dumbledore was free. Aberforth says, how can you be sure that my brother wasn't more interested in the greater good than in you? How can you be sure you aren't disposable, just like my little sister? Spoiler alert! He is. <laughs> Harry says, sometimes you do have to think of the greater good. This is war. I'm not giving up. Even if you have, we need to get into Hogwarts. You gonna help us or not? Aberforth's like, fine. It's your funeral. Literally. He it's talks, about to be. Yeah. He talks to the painting and says, you know what to do. The picture of Ariana turns around and starts walking down a long tunnel painted behind her. More weird painting like... Metaphysics. Metaphysics. I don't know. We can't get into that uh, <laughs> right now. Aberforth says there's only one way in now. All the other old secret passageways are guarded. There's Dementors swarming the walls. There's regular patrols. Snape's in charge, and the Caros are his deputy. When you get inside, like, I don't know what you're going to fucking do, but that's on you. 
they see Ariana returning, but somebody is with her. Harry recognizes the person, but his hair is really long. His clothes are ripped and torn. He's got gashes on his face. The portrait swings open to reveal none other than but 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 motherfucking Neville motherfucking Longbottom who says, I knew you'd come. I knew it, Harry. And that's what happens in this week's chapter. And Alex's 20-ish minute summary put George the puppy completely to sleep. Look at him. Little buddy. He's so cute, y'all. It's just too much. Like, I knew puppies were cute. But, whoa. Now that one is our roommate. Now that one lives in our house. It's really nice. It's the best thing that's happened to me in such a long time. We're sleeping really weird, but... Yeah, well, barely sleeping. (laughs) Anyway, that is not, you know, something we need to spend a lot of time on. I could talk about him for the rest of time. This is a George fan club now. He's so cute. So, just one small reaction I had to this chapter while I was listening to it was... I used to be really annoyed by the shambolic, like, bumbling Jasper and Horace Death Eaters. But after the last two weeks, and honestly, the last four years, it tracks that the dumbest, most shambolic, comically evil people imaginable uh, would pull something like this Death Eater coup off and are incredibly dangerous. Yeah, we probably don't even have to spend much time (laughs) elaborating on that. Oh, by the way, if you're going to leave us one star because this podcast is too political, like, honest to God, go fuck yourself. (laughs) I'm just, like, done. Yeah, if you're pro-insurrectionist, like, ah. Fully and entirely go fuck yourself. Maybe examine your life choices a little bit. But, you know, like, the Death Eaters like to wear, like, elaborate costumes. They don't have very good plans. And... I don't know, like, J.K. Rowling sort of understood something about... The the, ineptitude of evil? Like, yeah, basically. Like, the mechanics of... Well, what she is getting at that I think is actually very fun and also very astute is the aftermath of the coup is, oh, fuck, now we have to, like, run something. And we did not plan that far. (laughs) And thank heavens in the United States, we are not quite yet at that moment. But right, yeah, you know, you breach the Capitol and you're like, uh, I don't really know what I want to do after this. Like, <laughs> I like, guess kill some people. Um, but like, we are also recording this before the inauguration. So, so yeah, God only God knows, knows what, what happens on happen. Wednesday. I did not expect when we started this podcast in like October of 2016 that it would be a Harry Potter podcast, but also a sort of a podcast like chronicling the crisis of American democracy. Yeah, and the crisis of the wizarding whatever they have. It's not really a democracy, but the kind of wizarding parliamentary bureaucracy. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, the Death Eaters are inept. They're ridiculous. Uh, The Order of the Phoenix often makes fun of them for like not operating with like a full quill set or whatever. Uh, is that the right like no, wizarding aphorism? <laughs> you know, like not enough, not a lot of like not the brightest crayons in the box, but that doesn't make them any less dangerous. It makes them substantially more dangerous because they're much easier to manipulate. Right, and I just I just don't think I the first time I read through these books, I didn't think I understood well enough like how how that oper like that dy- that particular 
dynamic and now um, I would say I have a healthy appreciation for it. To sort of replant our feet fully in this world just because I, I can't fucking talk about our world much more than this. I do find it, it does strain credulity, this whole chapter. I mean, in a world where we are asked to believe a lot of unbelievable things, and I'm not actually talking about the magic here, I'm mostly talking about plot machinations that very rarely totally work or track. The idea that the Death Eaters miss Harry and that Aberforth just shows up and also has the only access to Hogwarts is a little bit like, okay. I mean, once again, this is a terrible plan that the trio have hatched. I guess it was very self-consciously not a plan, but this, Aberforth is right. They are, and to quote directly Aberforth Dumbledore, fucking idiots. What were they expecting? They'd heard that Hogsmeade was like totally wired. They show up, cats screaming everywhere, surrounded by Death Eaters. Like, what were they expecting to happen? Luckily, they find the one like sleeper cell resistance agent in Hogsmeade right away, but I guess the credit what, I'll what's give the them plan here? is if you're Harry, you're actually probably responding accurately to the inputs you've received so far because this always happens. Harry <laughs> Harry is probably like, well, clearly I'm the hero of this book, so something's gonna work. <laughs> You know, like there's like almost a funny like self-awareness to Harry Potter. It gets close to meta where Harry does seem to have some idea that because he's Harry Potter, there will always be like, uh, oh, look, it's Aberforth. (laughs) And he kind of trusts that in a way that I admire a little bit. The mechanism here of Harry relying on being Harry Potter to move through the world is it's sort of outrageous, but it, it kind of works. And if also, you're Harry, you're like, it always works out. I'm I'm just going to follow that instinct. But I mean, also, we're, cup, we're however many hundred pages in. Lovo's about to get the Horcruxes. You can definitely feel Rowling being like, oh, well, we got we to gotta wrap this up. You yeah, know? <laughs> honestly, the reason it works out so well is because we just do not have time. Yeah, we, we don't have space for like a Hogwarts heist, like break in. Like, like another scheme. Ocean's Eleven. Let's just, which this book is like five heist movies smushed together. In a trench coat. Yeah, yeah. just piled on top of each other. I do want to spend most of our time talking about this Dumbledore backstory, starting with just kind of exploring the relationship between these two brothers because what's really interesting to me here is actually their non-estrangement. Clearly there is strain and pain in this relationship, but Aberforth, and I would say to Aberforth's vast credit, has deliberately stayed in Albus Dumbledore's life. Right, Remains a comrade in this this work that they're doing and um, at least some version of a confidant despite the fact that he should by rights fucking hate albus we do know that they're still in touch because albus tells him about the mirror and then we know we know from past books that dumbledore occasionally drops in on the hog's head which we used to think was just because he sort of likes sketchy he's just into dive bars yeah (laughs) dive bars uh but now we know that aberforth is the barman yeah which is pretty awesome what is pretty awesome? That Dumbledore's brother runs the Hogshead. I don't know if I have anything to say about that. I just like it, you know? He runs the Hogwarts of bars, it basically. It is honestly a very fun plot twist. <laughs> Aberforth being in this chapter is a blast. I 
really like Aberforth the character. She just she's just doing the very satisfying thing that she does throughout these books where she takes an incidental detail that like you kind of are, yeah that you're like familiar with and then it's like actually this is way more important than you ever thought it was she and- is really <laughs> good at that she is really good her callback game i mean she could be an improviser like her callback game is extremely strong and i you know i admire that because i do think a lot of series writers and you know a thing we know about jk rowling to her credit and her detriment is she has the desire to retain pretty fierce control over the world building of Harry Potter. She believes that it belongs solely to her, which in a lot of ways puts her at odds with her fans, but she is more familiar with her world than than most writers, I think, especially, I mean, I don't know, like J.R.R. Tolkien like drew all the maps and shit, but I feel like I've read a fair number of series, especially series for younger readers, where it just seems like there's a little less care taken with the world building and like details do kind of get lost or muddled or you sort of return to earlier sagas and something that you've seen doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the books don't feel like... But their internal logic is pretty tight. They don't feel like when you're looking at a scene, it doesn't look... It's not like a facade, like the way you'd have it on like a stage where if you walked around the scenery, there's nothing like behind it like it feels and that's why people love revisiting these books it feels like you could plop down to the hog's head and like walk into different rooms or like meet different like people sort of naturally it's like less it's very immersive yeah and and i do think one of the things that's wonderful about having loved harry potter is you can spend time in this world without necessarily spending time in like the linear plot of these books i think it does feel the thing that every harry potter fan knows even those of us who are currently feeling a a measure of sadness or disappointment. This world is extremely real. And a lot of that I think is to JK's credit in exactly what you're talking about, where she remembers all of her own details. And it's really important for authors to do that, but a lot of them really don't. So her ability to sort of like turn around and walk down this random hallway that isn't, like nothing is non-playable. There's something at the end of every hallway, even if it's not written down in here. Right which I, I, I love, and the, the richness of this world sort of is what keeps people here and keeps people coming back. So In spite of everything. In spite of everything. The other thing that's very fun about Aberforth is his character really gets at how much it fucking sucks to know someone, quote-unquote, great, very closely and personally. Yeah, it'd be terrible. I guess it's less that it would be terrible to know someone like this, but more, sometimes I think about... You know, I feel like Western history has a lot of these sort of like great man myths or narratives. Sometimes I'm like, what if you were that person's kid or their wife and being acquainted with their genius wouldn't actually make it any better that they literally didn't give a shit about you. And Or maybe they do give a shit about you, but just like slightly less than all the other stuff, which is very like abnormal when you're in a family and like the family is... I don't know if it's abnormal, but people who I think, and I I don't actually mean this as a knock, but I think most people who contribute something enormously important to sort of society at large, you have to be working with a, a fair amount of narcissism. 
which I think can often be, there's, there are healthy measures of narcissism. I think you can believe in yourself in a way that would be pathological, except that you're probably right. But that doesn't make it any more pleasant to be the person who is on the receiving end of that narcissism in like a personal relationship. Right. And, you know, it means leaving, like, you only have so much bandwidth, even like. Yeah, you only have so, so much like, self to give. Only, like, even like what we would consider remarkable people so yeah a lot of the very important small bore emotional labor falls to people like Aberforth and Ariana within, yeah within within the family and I don't know that's that's a really that's a really complicated dynamic yeah and this is a really astute way of dealing with it because what I like is that you don't have Aber- it hasn't made Aberforth unlikable it hasn't even really embittered him he's just he's a realist and I actually what's fun about him is he's less charismatic you know he's described in various ways as you know he's gruff and he's physically I wouldn't say unattractive but kind of unkempt and clearly doesn't care for his appearance and Dumbledore is fairly you know flashy appearance wise he's very yeah he's uh Everything about Dumbledore is very curated. Yeah, he's a very cultivated look, but... Even the parts that are whimsical and funny. Well, but Aberforth comes across as a substantially more humane and empathetic person. Like, Aberforth seems to get other human beings a lot more than Albus Including Dumbledore, who nobody seems to get. Yeah, but Aberforth seems to be, he is the only person that we've seen Harry have a conversation with in this entire series, where you can sort of see a recognizable and complete Albus Dumbledore in Aberforth's very fair and honestly pretty kind estimation. I can't leave, said Harry. I've got a job. Give it to someone else. I can't. It's got to be me. Dumbledore explained it all. Oh, did he now? And did he tell you everything? Was he honest with you? Harry wanted with all his heart to say yes, but somehow the simple word would not rise to his lips. Aberforth seemed to know what he was thinking. I knew my brother, Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee secrets and lies. That's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. The old man's eyes traveled to the painting of the girl over the mantelpiece. It was, now Harry looked around properly, the only picture in the room. There was no photograph of Albus Dumbledore, nor of anyone else. Like, I actually think Aberforth is is more than fair about Albus's strengths and weaknesses. He isn't like, my brother's evil. He's like, he had a towering ego that matched his towering intellect. He cared more about his work than the people who loved him. And that isolated him for his entire life. And I think a thing that is really important to remember is that Dumbledore lives his entire life incredibly isolated. Like, Dumbledore has no close relationships in any of the books. Like, we never see Dumbledore have a close relationship in the books. It seems like his relationship with Aberforth, strained as it is... It's probably his only connection that feels that where he can be even remotely real. Because even to your point about whimsy, Dumbledore's sort of studied whimsy, I think covers up the fact that he is a profoundly ruthless person. And he can't actually... He can't really let his teeth flash, you know? He, He has this, like... Ooh, like whirly gig lemon drop <laughs> vibe. This kind of like chaos, 
this like chaos daddy vibe because I think he's pretty cruel. But even that, yeah, even that is like, it's, we can see now the ways that that's calculating and meant to draw people in. And I mean, I don't doubt that he likes lemon drops. But making that his whole personality is a branding choice. Like some of the, you know, some of, I mean, that's what effective personal branding is, right? Yeah. Like you take pretty insignificant details and make them interesting to people by virtue of the fact that they're about you. But well, also you take details that do, that are grounded in some reality about yourself and then you kind of use them to craft a narrative that will be appealing to people and help you, you know, achieve whatever ends you're looking for. So, you know, Dumbledore loving candy is probably true, but he's also kind of using it to... Yeah, and that's what... You know, just... Yeah, he's also using that fact to kind of create, like, a public image of him as the, like, whimsical genius sage. And all of us do that all the time. We all tell a story of self. I mean, for lack, that's like a Marshall Gantz. That's like technically an organizing term. But like, yeah, everybody chooses things about themselves to spin into kind of defining characteristics. But... and Dumb- Yeah, but Dumbledore is just way better at that or has actually invested time into it where Aberforth sort of comes by his quirks naturally and isn't looking for... Like, he's not working the goat angle. He just likes goats. Yeah. Well, and the reason Dumbledore has invested so heavily in that is because Dumbledore has... I think Dumbledore has something to hide. I think Dumbledore's essential self is pretty dark. Clearly, he copes with a lot of shame and guilt. Clearly, he feels pretty deep ambivalence about his own moral choices. And and so he's had to invest much more heavily in a persona because I don't think he feels safe or comfortable occupying his kind of real psyche. He's also a public figure. You yeah, know? That's so his, true. his persona is totally bound up in but he's like, one of the those... power that he has and But he's someone who that doesn't slip with anyone. And I think right. that is what's hard is so, when yeah. you let the man and the legend like meld and then you don't know how to get out from behind the legend, and that has created just deep wells of loneliness in right. Albus Dumbledore. I come away the... from this chapter imagining Albus as primarily lonely. And yeah. very alone in the world. I think the little the little whimsical, like, the squashy armchairs and stuff, that's sort of a way, now that after reading this chapter, it's a way to, like, make people think that they know him without him having to show anything about himself. Yeah, which is something that really smart public figures do well. Right, because all his cards are actually hidden, you know? Well, not all of them, but Dumbledore is only revealing to the world what Dumbledore wants the world to know and Aberforth is obviously you know he doesn't have like a headmastership to protect he's like living I don't know private people who live more private lives can be more just themselves I guess but I do actually want to push on that because I think it is possible to live a public life with authenticity to some degree and I think Albus Dumbledore has really chosen not to Mm -hmm. I think that his his lack of authenticity is a decision beyond the fact that he's powerful. You know, the other thing I think is interesting in a, a pretty bright line between between Albus and Aberforth is that Aberforth really believes that people should have a choice about their whether or not they sort of participate in the the greater good schemes of Albus Dumbledore. Aberforth really wants Harry to have a choice. 
My brother Albus wanted a lot of things, said Aberforth, and people had a habit of getting hurt while he was carrying out his grand plans. You get away from this school, Potter, and out of the country if you can. Forget my brother and his clever schemes. He's gone where none of this can hurt him, and you don't owe him anything. You don't understand, said Harry again. Oh, don't I, said Aberforth quietly. You don't think I understood my own brother? Think you knew Albus better than I did? I didn't mean that, said Harry, whose brain felt sluggish with exhaustion and from the surfeit of food and wine. It's... he left me a job. Did he now? said Aberforth. Nice job, I hope. Pleasant, easy. Sort of thing you'd expect an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. Yeah, when Aberforth says to Harry, you should flee the country, get out of here, you don't owe Albus Dumbledore anything, I don't necessarily know if Aberforth 100% wants Harry to do that, because Aberforth was a member of the Order of the Phoenix, he hates the Death Eaters, he clearly believes in this cause, but I think he also knows his brother and disagrees with his ethical framework of the greater good, which Dumbledore clearly still believes in. He's just putting that toward different ends than the ones he was working on with Grindelwald. And he just thinks Harry should have a choice, that it shouldn't just be Albus Dumbledore pulling all the strings and saying which pieces go where. Aberforth is more recognizing Harry's agency and saying, you don't have to do this. You can do anything you want. You don't have to do what Dumbledore says, what Albus Dumbledore says. And I think this is also a useful moment for the reader because given everything that comes after this, it's helpful to watch Harry make an informed decision. I do think Harry is fully aware that he's pretty likely to die. I still do fault Albus Dumbledore for basically preparing him like a lamb for the slaughter for Harry's entire life. But that aside, I think Aberforth offering the alternative, like just giving him the alternative vision of running away, allows the reader to watch Harry Potter kind of become an adult making a choice rather than a boy kind of following a scheme. Right. And yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. right now with everything Aberforth tells him, like Harry doesn't know fully Dumbledore's plans yet, Albus, Professor Dumbledore's plans yet, but he has enough information to kind of guess at them. And I think regardless of whether he can guess the plans, he knows he's probably going to die. Like, right. the thing is, Harry seems extremely aware of the risks he's taking, and which I think is, is, it's helpful as a reader to know that, because then we don't feel, it would be hard to come out of this series and experience, like, only rage at Albus Dumbledore, which I think I would have, I have mostly rage. <laughs> But, you know, you, you kind of can retain some affection or respect for him because you know that ultimately Harry makes his own choice. And also, this is the only time Harry has encountered someone that knows Dumbledore as well as he does. Right. So them having this conversation actually does feel very close to a conversation between equals 
where Aberforth is hinting at all of these things that Harry has been thinking about for months. He's like, did he give you all the information you need? Do you feel like he asked you to do a reasonable thing? Are you actually the right person for this? And Harry's like, yeah, I've actually been thinking about this a lot. The answers are complicated, but they don't change the fact that I am deciding to follow this path. And I don't know, I think that's, it's a moment that makes this book about Harry's agency ultimately as opposed to just a bunch of shit that happens to Harry Potter. That Dumbledore has set very, in motion. Very carefully and you stage cannot, managed. You cannot ultimately this character doesn't work unless ultimately he has agency. And he it does work. And and Harry as the chosen one ends up working because ultimately Harry decides to continue to be the chosen one. Which is like really the beauty of Harry Potter. Does he do that because Dumbledore... This is an honest question. Uh, does he do that because Dumbledore has manipulated him into it by... So, because Dumbledore's plan is all along has clearly been to prepare Harry stage by stage to arrive at the conclusion that Dumbledore wants. Yeah, I think to some extent, yes. But I also think that Harry has grown into his own moral authority. And I think he's making an, I do think he's making an informed decision based on what he has independently seen of the world. Because at this point, Harry also knows what happens if he like bounces. Right. He knows firsthand that like Voldemort super wins and that that's unacceptable. Like Harry has seen the world that he would be sort of abandoning for himself, like with his own eyes. And he makes the decision not to abandon it. So I think it's complicated. Also, he's still a kid. The idea that he can really consent to any of this is complex. But yeah, I think he's asserting his choice here. And I think he has seen that he couldn't live with himself if he made a different choice. Right. And that's important. That's worthwhile. I think a couple more things that I just have been thinking about with what we learned about Dumbledore's character, what we learned about Albus Dumbledore's character here. The plural of Dumbledore is Dumbledore. <laughs> the Dumbledore <laughs> brothers. Ariana's death basically like averts Voldemort's descent into, uh, averts, wow. That was a Freudian slip. Dumbledore's descent into pure fascism, which is like a relief, but it's also like it should have taken less than that. Like you should have been not flirting with fascism before Grindelwald probably killed your sister and definitely tortured your brother. I mean, I think this does haunt Dumbledore, as we've seen from the whole Yeah, but it, should have, it just should have taken yeah, less trauma have, for him not to be a fascist. You know, he his mind is a big, that's a big ship to turn around. You know? That's true. But then I guess the other Albus question I have is, does he ultimately learn from any of this? It separates him from Grindelwald's ideology, but he doesn't stop doing the kind of essential things that get him into this situation in the first place. He doesn't stop using people for his own ends. He doesn't stop believing that his intellect is superior to all the intellects around him. He never makes meaningful amends with his family before he dies. You know, I don't actually think he writes these wrongs, which... I mean, maybe is satisfying because it's a very imperfect way for a very imperfect kind of great man to die. But I don't know if he ends up doing right by anyone. Except, I guess, the wizarding world. Sort of. Because, I mean, he's instrumental in defeating Voldemort, so... My question then becomes, and I don't think we can spend a ton of time here, but is Dumbledore's plot the only way Voldemort is defeated? Like, is there no other way forward? I don't know, because Dumbledore doesn't allow there to be That's any other way That's the thing about Dumbledore, forward. is like, he's so obsessed with his own manner of sort of 
wrapping things up that he doesn't even make room for anyone else to succeed <laughs> in a way that's sort of disturbing. Like yeah. that's that that ego is frightening. I mean, he is a towering and terrifying self-regard, which somebody of that sort of intellectual magnitude might have to. I mean, I, th- I think that clearly the death of someone helpless softens him. A little. Not enough, though. Yeah. I don't know, maybe. I think it, it sh- clearly changes his opinions about house elves and other overlooked It's true, but we, we've talked people. about this before. Like, Dumbledore is never an abolitionist. That's true. Like, he's yeah. an incrementalist to the very end. And a paternalist. And incredibly paternalist. He's like, okay, well, we'll look after the house elves, but this is my prescription for... Looking after the house elves, yeah, and yeah, I don't know. To the idea of his paternalism, you know, one of the great tragedies here is that Harry and Dumbledore share this sort of childhood and youth that is warped by pain and trauma, and Dumbledore never offers that commonality to Harry as a way of, like, connecting with him or making Harry feel like it's okay. He actually pretty fiercely and jealously guards that connection because he feels I think like well you say this but he actually pretty closely and jealously guards that connection like he never lets Harry see that they have this shared pain I think it's another way that Dumbledore maintains control he doesn't want to give Harry or anyone really any points of leverage over him he wants to own his story and Dumbledore is a control freak But ownership of his story precludes connection, which is so tragic. You know, it makes it impossible for him to be in meaningful community with anyone. You know, he's alone because he won't let people see him. That's so sad. I mean, Dumbledore's life, we learn, he is incredibly powerful and important and very, very, very sad, which I guess is not a very unique story. But I think that tragedy, I don't know, it hits different. Yeah, bummer. Speaking of tragedy, I think for a minute we can talk about sort of how trauma shows up in the Ariana character because obviously that's another major kind of like obsession of J.K. Rowling's and something that she writes about pretty adeptly throughout these books. Yeah, I did not remember this part well. This chapter is really sad. It is really sad. To belabor the point, it's tragedy all the way down in Dumbledore's world. Uh, To me... World building wise, it's another symptom of the rot of the wizarding world that, you know, there's no uh, mental health care infrastructure. Yeah, and they have to no... hide. Yeah, they have to hide Ariana because the statute of secrecy trumps all. There's no way. There's no like emphasis on keeping like families together. Uh, it's like fucked up. What happens to her and to the Dumbledores? And I don't know. It's very, yeah, it sucks. J.K. Rowling, she writes about trauma very adeptly. We've talked about that lots. And she is also, she's very realistic about healing, I think, because she certainly doesn't believe that healing is impossible. But she knows that healing takes help and that you don't just, that you don't overcome adversity because you're either strong or you don't overcome it because you're weak. Overcoming adversity requires like systems that allow for that. And these are not, those systems don't exist in this world. So there's just, it's awful that there's no shot for Ariana. To whom something happened that sounds awful, but I think only in this particular sort of societal structure does Ariana's life end at the moment that, she gets 
attacked, assaulted, whatever we're meant to understand by these muggle boys. Well, I don't know. I mean, our, I think any society she's in, right? Like people, we shunt aside folks who are grievously injured in mind and in spirit. We do, but when we don't, healing is available and possible. I think this doesn't have to be Ariana's lot. This is her lot because of the choices that people around her make and not because she is fundamentally broken when a when a horrible thing happens to her. And I actually think that's conveyed pretty effectively here. Mm. That Ariana isn't given a shot, not because there's something sort of irrevocably broken about Ariana, but because there is no structure in place where she could sort of seek healing. And nobody even thinks about the possibility of doing that. Like her brothers, even Aberforth, sort of the best life he can imagine for her is to be sort of managed and hidden. And to his credit, he even says, like, I was pretty good at helping her calm down. So he even knows that a major part of her care should be kind of like helping her essentially manage her symptoms in a way that doesn't hurt herself or other people. But yeah, there's obviously no mental health infrastructure whatsoever except for being permanently institutionalized, which is evil. And wizards are so, wizards are so interesting because they talk about themselves as incredibly powerful, but they are obviously more afraid of muggles than of anything else in this way that's sort of perverse. I don't know, it's weird. Like the statute of secrecy, we haven't, really gotten into it's like necessity and utility much but I think they name reasons for it that don't really hold up and it actually a lot of it has to do with fear well I guess they know they're unnumbered right yeah but they talk about it as like oh well muggles would want to like use our magic for their aims but that's clearly not what they're actually afraid of I mean they're afraid of being marginalized the way they themselves marginalize other magical creatures Societies that are really good at marginalizing others know for a fact that it could happen to them. (laughs) And that's their fear, you know? They're like, yeah, we're really fucking good at keeping house elves down, so clearly someone could do that to us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you run a society that way, you just expect... That someone else with the power to do so would do the same to you. Which is, yeah. I mean, that's why, like, a more equitable and just world, like, helps all of us. Because, like, the people on top, their greatest fear is stopping to be on top because they know for a fact what they do to people under them. Right. Which is, you know, not to, like, shed a tear for those folks, but that fear is its own kind of prison. Yeah, but it's a prison of their own making, so, like, they can, you know, rot in there. <laughs> frankly. Um, who's your unsung hero? Who's our unsung hero? Is it's Aberforth Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Obviously. The goat. He is the literal goat. <laughs> the greatest of all time. Aberforth is really one of the more moral characters in this book. I think he seems to have really thought through all of his life decisions. And I think you could perceive him as kind of hiding away in the hogshead. But really, I think he interacts with a fair amount of justice and compassion with, you know, man and beast. He's an animal lover, and I all of the animal lovers in this series, I think J.K. Rowling paints as having a particular kind of compassion and grace, and I think that's apt. I mean, I think Aberforth reminds me a little bit of Hagrid, but unlike Hagrid, he's not depicted as, like, simple. He seems to have a pretty sharp and complex intellect. I mean, he runs a successful small business. Yeah, he's also, like, one of the few 
like people I don't know succeeding under any version of capitalism in this world he's not a fucking bureaucrat that's another wild thing about having a sibling that so outstrips you is Aberforth's life seems pretty good you know he's got a good thing going, but... But he, too, is really isolated. That I mean, looks... this tragedy has made both of these men sort of doomed well, to that... lives of deep loneliness. Yeah. I mean, the point I was going to make was mostly that minus Albus Dumbledore, Al- Aberforth's life, Al- Aberforth's situation looks pretty good. But when you add in comparisons, it's like... My dad always says that life is a norm reference test. <laughs> well, you compare him to Albus Dumbledore. He's like, what is he? He's the barman at the hog's head. But I don't know. But that is one. Of, I mean, seriously, my dad all the time says life is a norm reference test, which, you know, is just another way of saying, like, you can always make a comparison and you can always make an unflattering comparison. That's just like, it's not particularly like useful thinking. I also wish we got to spend a little more time with Aberforth. I think he's written just really fun Because he's got Dumbledore vibes. Like, he does have some chaos daddy energy. Oh, yeah. A sharp wit. He dresses down the the Death Eaters in hilarious fashion. That's such a funny scene. (laughs) And I also have this sort of weird ache for, like, a reconciliation between the brothers. Like, I think I'm not all that interested in, like, kind of shipping or, like, slash fan fiction. I want, like... Family reunification fan fiction. I'm like, let's just write a fanfic where, like, Albus Dumbledore survives and he and Aberforth, like, really have it out and they reconcile. And then they get to be old, weird men who love each other openly. That's nice. Yeah. I just have a real penchant for, like, elderly sibling relationships. That's, I don't know, that's just, like, beside the point. But I like old siblings. I think it's very sweet when they're close. (laughs) So yeah, that's that. Aberforth is like one of the unsung heroes of the Harry Potter canon, I would say. Yes, absolutely. This week's episode is brought to you, I believe, once again by the Hogshead Inn. When you're here and you're Albus Dumbledore, you're family. <laughs> oh, speaking of callbacks, the audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are, of course, from the incomparable Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Also, have we already said on this podcast that Stephen Fry is on Bones, which is like... We may have. One of the weirdest confluences of our strange mini-obsession of the pandemic, which is the fact that we are still watching Bones, y'all. The accidental Ariana death would be a Bones plot. It would be. Often, they're accidental deaths. That they cover up, which I every time that's the plot, I'm like, no. A non-stupid person would just call 911. Wow, we didn't even really talk about how the Dumbledores cover up this accidental death. It's pretty dark. I mean, the thing is, like, Aberforth and Albus are also complicit in a series of pretty, like, dubious deeds. So maybe they hate each other because they're like, those were bad choices that we mutually made. they could go to Azkaban for this. Like, don't they just blame it on her... Like, the disease they made up because they said Honestly, she was sickly? Like, I think what the fuck? My understanding is that Grindelwald kills her. Like, Aberforth is like, it could have been any of us. But I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to think that well, Grindelwald, Grindelwald starts it. it. Yeah, he also Cruciatuses. I mean, to Albus's credit, he's like, peace out. We're not friends anymore. Like, you killed my sister and tortured my brother. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. Anyway, um, Jim Dale. 
Deathly Hallows. That's the audiobooks. You can find us on social media if you must. Um, <laughs> if social media is a thing you like that, to do. That still feels relevant to you. Honestly, no. We, we like interacting with folks on we're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Quibbler Podcast. DM us. Send us an email, quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to get an e-owl review rate. Mostly subscribe because, as you very well know, these come out at completely random intervals, so you probably want to know when one is coming. Rate and review if you feel like it. And we are reading next the chapter called The Lost Diadem. So we'll talk to you then. Thanks! Amigos, the silver doe," he said excitedly. "Was that you too? What are you talking about?" said Aberforth. "Someone sent a doe Patronus to us. Brains like that, you could be a death eater, son. Haven't I just proved my Patronus is a goat?" "Oh," said Ron. "Yeah. Well, I'm hungry. I got food." said Aberforth, and he sloped out of the room, reappearing moments later with a large loaf of bread, some cheese, and a pewter jug of mead. Plus, all the salad and breadsticks you want, all for $9.95. That's Hospitaliano. The Hogshead Inn. When you're here, you're family. It, it's not easy, no, said Harry, but I've got to... Got to? Why got to? He's dead, isn't he? said Aberforth roughly. Let it go, boy, before you follow him. Save yourself. I can't. Why not? I... At the Olive Garden Italian restaurant, we speak a different language. We have no words for can't. And won't. No phrases for a little less. In fact, we don't know the meaning of enough.